Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Before we start on today's show, let me tell you about a new podcast. On Wednesday, the 9th of October, we're launching a new podcast called The Rackman Review, a weekly look at global affairs by the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rackman. The show will take in some of the interviews with decision makers and analysts he's met on his travels around the world and will also draw on the FT's great network of foreign correspondents. This show is exclusively for FT subscribers, so if that's you, please go to ft.com slash Review and sign up for a taste of the global political debates that Gideon writes about in his columns. And now on with today's Banking Weekly. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and also from the US, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest today is Jordi Guell. He's the chairman of Caixa Bank in Spain. Today, we'll be looking at HSBC as it prepares to cut up to 10,000 jobs under pressure on various fronts, not least on the net interest margin that it can charge, which links us to our guest today, Jordi Guell, chairman of Caixa Bank in Spain. That's the biggest retail bank there who's talking about interest rates. Secondly, today we'll be looking at US banks as they prepare to announce third quarter results. And finally, the UK's Metro Bank chairman, Vernon Hill, is leaving. First, though, to HSBC. And David, you broke a cracking scoop the other day about what could be a very big restructuring of their network, particularly cutting jobs in Europe. 10,000 jobs potentially could go. Tell us more about what's happening. So yes, this is in effect the first big strategic decision by the interim chief executive Noel Quinn, who replaced John Flint, you'll remember, who was ousted in August. And there had been a question over whether Mr. Quinn was a caretaker who would keep things going until someone else came in. And at the time, the bank said, no, he has got the authority to make big strategic decisions. And here we are. 10,000 or up to 10,000 jobs threatened by this cost-cutting drive, which looks at highly paid roles in Europe and also could be sort of helped along by the divestment of HSBC's retail bank in France, which is not a very good business, frankly, and employs about 4,000 people. Yeah, as we know, HSBC makes the vast bulk of its money in Asia. And I was looking at the results up to the first half of the year last night. I shocked to see that their cost-income ratio, that's their cost base as a proportion of revenue in the European operation, is 99.9%. That's not a great way to make money. No, it's not. And this has been HSBC's problem after years of international expansion under previous management. They kind of neglected Asia a little bit, but now the focus is very much back in Asia, especially trying to grow the business on the Chinese mainland. And yet their capital and their people are in all the wrong places. So they have people and capital trapped in the US where they make no money. 
they have too many people in Europe as well. And so this is kind of a first attempt, if you like, to try to put that right. And I don't think it will be the last, you know, this is not the final word on reshaping that company. Well, as you said, it's Noel Quinn, the interim chief executive who's conducting this review, which is pretty unusual for a stand-in, I suppose, to do this kind of thing. Is there anything more behind this move? I think you mentioned in your coverage that Chief Financial Officer Ewan Stevenson, who we've actually had on as a guest on the podcast a couple of times when he was back at RBS, that he's played a significant role here. Maybe Mark Tucker, the pretty hardline chairman, is also um, pulling strings here. Yeah, I think what you're seeing is a lot of pent-up frustration since Mr. Stevenson came in. He, I think, has been pushing for a faster, more aggressive approach on costs supported by the chairman, Mark Tucker, and I think we're told resisted by Mr. Flint. And so having got that obstacle out of the way, they don't want to wait for another six months for the permanent CEO to be announced. And so they're getting on with it, basically. Well, we'll see how they do get on and also how influential this cost-cutting exercise is on other peers, which has to be said, probably have even greater issues with their cost base. Moves on to our kind of second half of this first item quite neatly because one of the pressures, obviously, that HSBC, like other banks, is under at the moment is this very squeezed scope to make money from lending. The so-called net interest margin is right down to the bone. And the biggest reason for that is ultra-low interest rates, negative interest rates in some areas, such as continental Europe. We were speaking very recently to Jordi Gual, who's the chairman of Spain's largest retail bank, Caixa Bank. And we started by asking him what he made of the latest monetary policy decision by the ECB that further cut into negative territory, the introduction of so-called tiering to allow banks to escape some of the impact and other measures. Measures of the ECB last week, it's an attempt to use yet again monetary policy to try to soften the potential slowdown of the European economy going forward. I really believe that uh, at this stage, after so many rounds of easing monetary policy, There's not much room for additional mileage that we can get from such uh, an approach. So it's the turn of fiscal policy if leaders believe that the economy needs some countercyclical measures. Uh, On the other hand, it's understandable that the central bank, if it wants to use monetary policy, takes into account the negative impact of this policy on the P&L of the financial intermediaries, because certainly such an uh, extreme environment of negative interest rates is counterintuitive to the banking business, which essentially is a business about lending and collecting deposits. And typically it has been lending with a positive rate and paying depositors with also a positive rate with a spread. So this policy is negative for the banks and it's understandable that the ECB has introduced this tiering scheme to sort of tone down a bit uh, such negativity. Obviously, one of the things you'd like to see is interest rates going in the other direction. Beyond that, what else could policymakers do in Europe to help the banks and help the broader economy in Europe? One of the things that policymakers uh, are striving to achieve, and it's been very hard, is to really complete uh, the internal market uh, for banking and capital flows. 
This means completing the banking union with the third pillar, which is the insurance scheme for the whole European Union. The deposit and, guarantee yeah, scheme. Yeah, the deposit guarantee scheme yes. and making progress in the capital market union. Those two things are in the agenda and I hope that the new commission will bring them forward in the coming months. I've heard some other bankers talk about other rule changes they'd like to see, maybe a softening of the regime on equity capital to back SME lending, for example, to make it cheaper in capital terms to lend to, to SMEs. Would you support that idea? Well, let me say that on that issue of uh, capital ratios, what I think that we need most is to finalize the process of uh, transposition of Basel III and to stabilize that ratio. I think that the investors need to be sure that the level of the ratios of capital achieved by the European banking industry are uh, satisfactory and stable. What hurts, I believe, is uncertainty about what's the appropriate level. In fact, constantly changing rules yeah. is not a good idea. Well, let's move on now to our second topic of the day and a look at the upcoming results season. This third quarter results will be upon us next week. And to set the scene, we're joined now by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Laura, thanks very much for being with us. Yes, it's another bank's results season. What can we expect to see from the big Americans this time around? The first thing we can expect from this quarter's US bank earnings season is a lot of very harassed journalists and analysts come Tuesday morning when we have Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs all reporting earnings on the same day, which I don't know why anyone would have thought that was a good idea, but there we go. Then Bank of America and Morgan Stanley both file later in the week. So overall, no one's expecting great things from the banks this quarter. I think that will come as no surprise to regular listeners and regular readers who have been hearing all about the growing trade tensions, the unhelpful yield curve, which makes it hard for banks to make money from their core lending, and of course, continuing uncertainty around Brexit. There's always winners and losers, of course, certainly in relative terms. So how are we expecting things to shape up? So Goldman Sachs looks like the biggest loser. If we look at analyst estimates of how much banks are going to earn in the third quarter this year relative to what they earned a year ago, and they expect Goldman Sachs earnings on an earnings per share basis to be down around 13%, Morgan Stanley's earnings are also expected to be down, and the other banks are expected to do better. So the moral among this is that the investment banks do look like they're doing worse. It's been a difficult environment for trading. We've had some bank executives comment on that publicly. We also have had investment banking revenues are very challenged. I mean, if we think about the IPO market in particular, we think about the recent failure to list WeWork, you can certainly see why companies who maybe were thinking about coming to market in the third quarter might have thought, you know what, it's a better idea to wait a while, maybe come in the fourth quarter, maybe even push that out into 2020. That means that we're going to see banks with lower investment banking fees. If we think about the other banks then, obviously interest rates do make for a challenging backdrop and people universally expect that the net interest income margins are going to be lower and they expect some fairly cautious guidance around net interest income going forward. But it's not all bad news. So the US consumer has been pretty resilient. Lending volumes are holding up pretty well and credit quality is good. So all of that makes for a more benign background than maybe you think for the retail banks. And finally, is there anything else we should be looking at for across individual banks? There's going to be a lot of other big themes in this quarter. One of them is going to be around trading commissions, how much banks can charge for online trades in particular. So in the last few weeks, we've seen E-Trade, Charles Schwab and TT Ameritrade. That's three of the big online broker dealers who have introduced zero commission across the piece. And I think analysts are very concerned about what that could mean for banks trading. 
banks don't have a uniform zero trading policy. So I think they'll be asked how they expect people to continue to pay to trade on bank platforms when they can get it for free. Or they'll be asked if they have any plans to follow these big online brokerages down the zero commission model. And if they do, how can they make money from that? The other big theme we'll be looking at will be around what's happened to repo rates in the last few weeks. We've had big spikes in repo rates. That's essentially the amount of money that banks charge to lend out money overnight. We've seen the Federal Reserve actually step into that market in a manner fairly similar to what the European Central Bank has been doing for years now, but quite unusual in the US. And the Federal Reserve has been coming in to extend liquidity. I think banks will be asked whether they need to be doing more to provide liquidity into those markets if the lack of liquidity tells us anything about underlying stresses in the markets, if they can position their own portfolios differently to enable them to ease that up. I think that's going to be a big talking point. Then if we think about individual banks, Goldman Sachs, as those of you who follow Goldman Sachs will know, still hasn't managed to resolve the legal issues relating to the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia. They had been hoping to do it in 2019. We're now obviously into October 2019. It seems to be drifting away from them, but I think people will be hoping for some kind of material update on whether they're any closer to settling with the Department of Justice in particular over that. The other bank that has some news, of course, is Wells Fargo, which is appointed a new chief executive, Charlie Scharf. He is not expected to make an appearance on the earnings call because he starts work on October 21st. Thanks, Laura. That's excellent. Let's move on now to our final topic of the day and a look at Metro Bank. Nick, we like to talk about Metro on this show. There's always plenty going on there. Not least in the past week, we've had two big related news items. Firstly, the departure of Vernon Hill, the co-founder of the bank and the long-standing chairman who's finally agreed to go, I think at the end of this year. And related to that seemingly is the fact that they managed to get away a significant bond issue that seemingly was held up as long as Mr. Hill was in position. So tell us exactly what happened and um, what the impact was. Yeah, this is, as you suggest, the latest twist in what is becoming quite a long-running saga at Metro Bank. Interestingly, after months of criticism from shareholders and governance experts, it ended up being bond investors who tend to be less bothered by governance issues most of the times who effectively forced out Mr. Hill as chairman. He'd said over the summer that he would step down at some point, but a lot of people weren't particularly convinced by it. He wouldn't give a date as to when he would go. He was saying he'd stop being chairman, but he was still going to be on the board. He was wanting to have a long handover with whoever his successor might be. They hadn't even appointed anyone to actually look. Whereas now he has said he's definitively going to step down both as chairman and from the board by the end of the year. Officially, this decision was entirely Mr. Hill's own, but the timing was not coincidental. It came just over a week after Metro had tried to raise £200 million or between £200 and £250 million to meet new MRL requirements with a bond issue and somewhat embarrassingly had to pull it because of a lack of demand. A week later, they announced Mr. Hill's exit, and within a couple of hours, they've secured orders worth far more than they needed for a similar bond. The message from investors and from talking to advisors and people close to Metro Bank was clear, which was that they were concerned about both the strategy under Mr. Hill, as long as he was around, and the sort of overhang caused by regulatory investigations and his presence on the board. As anyone who's ever listened to an analyst call between the executives at Metro Bank and others in the sector, Mr. Hill's definitely more engaged than a normal non-exec chair. Not to say dominant. Well, uh, final thought then in terms of what this means for Metro going forward. Clearly, this departure has freed them up to raise the bond funding they needed. 
But the share price is still something like 95% down for the year. It's been a pretty torrid time and regulatory inquiries are still ongoing as far as I understand. So what's next for Metro? Yeah, I mean, the shares did pick up after the combined sets of news and it does help to take off a bit of short-term pressure on the bank. Its capital position is strong after it did a share issue earlier in the year and now after the bond sale, it's pretty much sorted on MREL. The departure of Mr. Hill might also make it easier for them to take slightly more radical steps to clean up the business and potentially shift the strategy. But they do need to do something, as you suggest. As we've spoken about before, it's quite a difficult environment for mid-sized banks, even the not dysfunctional ones at the moment. Metro's returns are already very low. It's having to pay a huge amount of money for this bond that it sold last week as well. So that's going to put further pressure on its profits. So there's still a lot of decisions to be made about where they should prioritise their lending going forward, potentially more asset sales. And then, yes, those regulatory investigations could be carrying on for quite a while to come. Not out of the woods, I think it's fair to say. Thank you for that. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to David and Nick here in the studio, to Laura, who joined us from New York, and also to our guest, Jordi Guell, the chairman of Spain's biggest bank, Caixa Bank. And also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.